Being an expert sucks. As a teacher of spiritual intelligence and emotional health, I get cornered into being the guy who has all the answers. I'd like to take this opportunity to make a confession. I don't. What I do have are convictions. I have theories. I have questions. I find myself looking around and I'm like, we can't stay here. Stop setting up your tent. We can't stay here. Through my journey, it's become evident that being a participant is no longer enough. It's time to become reformers. These are my confessions. To get deeper in this conversation, visit MikeMayashiro.com. Hey guys, I've got a funny intro for you. We've got a two-part series coming up on my podcast that we're releasing both episodes together. I interviewed a special guest and uh, we did this as a remote interview. So he was running his end of the interview and was not able to turn off his notification sounds on his laptop from his end and we weren't able to edit those out. So I want to let you know those are going to happen. We're sorry we weren't able to address that. So we're just going to have to bear that in the interview throughout. Um, Don't worry about it. It's just his laptop going off of notifications he was getting while we were talking. And the other thing is um, we were releasing a two part to this conversation. I'm releasing them both at the same time. Um, So they're both coming out. You can listen to back to back and they are meant to be listened to in tandem. The first one ends up being a lot more introductory who this person is. What is he about? Where is he coming from? The second one is where things get really interesting. and We start getting more into specifics on even particularly why I wanted to have this guy on. And I'm hoping to have him on a lot more times later. Special guest. Looking forward to you guys hearing from him. Um, but just so you know, I want to give you a little intro. We had some funny things to navigate when it came to the technical side of the audio on this. So just bear with us and I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Confessions of a Reformer. I'm your host, Mike Mayashiro. And um, today I've got a special guest for you that I'm going to introduce. I don't know that you guys, I imagine maybe a, a, the majority of you guys listening to this might not actually know who this person is. So I'm super excited if you get to meet him. Um, before I introduce him, I just wanted to throw in, we just had the Numa Symposium last weekend and it was so much fun to put on. Um, it's funny how the pandemic has just shifted how we do things now, right? And so the entire event was live streamed. That's it. There was no live attendance besides my team. It was crazy. Super fun though. And I'm grateful for technology for us to still be able to partner with the Holy Spirit and impact people across the world and not have to be in the same room and still get to do that in real time. What a gift. It was amazing. If you hadn't, if you didn't join us for that and you wanted to check it out, you can still get it on my website. The recording live, the live recording is being produced and will be, is available on there. So feel free to check that out if you wanted to. Um, particularly I did an, an episode or a session on what I called plastic fruit. I basically addressed some practices I see in the church that I don't see in the kingdom. And I'm like, these things are propagated and celebrated in the church world. I don't understand. It's not in the book. And it was a pretty lively session with some pretty strong visual aid. <laughs> so I would highly encourage you guys to check that out if you can. Um, but anyway, getting into today's episode, I want to just get there because this guy's got some stuff to say. Um, I mean, there's so many different titles I could give him. His name is Ken Fish, by the way. Ken is an itinerant minister. He's, a pa- he's, a, he's an apostle. He's probably a prophet. He's probably a pastor and an evangelist and a teacher. Um, he's a... He moves in deliverance. He moves in the gifts of, of the spirit and healing and words of knowledge. Like the guy is wild. And we've had a few conversations and I've just, I mean, the whole thing was basically me asking questions and trying to keep up with everything just coming out of him. So uh, my plan for today is to kind of just like poke at Ken and just see what comes out and let you guys get like 
you know, swept up in <laughs> the torrential unleashing of what this man has to bring to the table. It's amazing. Years of experience. And yeah. Um, so Ken, do you want to say hi? Hi, this is Ken. <laughs> <laughs> so Ken, do you want to just give them a bit of like where your background, where you are, what you do? Just like, a, I, I would try to explain it, but I think there's so much going on there. I don't know that I, I would nail it. Yeah, no problem. I'm, uh, I'm Ken Fish and I am the founder of Orbis Ministries, O-R-B-I-S. It's a Latin word that means uh, the world. And when we use it the way we're using it, it means unto the world. Latin has a lot of interesting ins and outs to it. Um, I used to call my organization Kingdom Fire Ministries, but actually some of my donors told me that the name itself was creating problems with uh, certain branches of the church who might otherwise be interested in hearing what I have to say. Mm. Um, many people wouldn't be aware of this at all, but you know there are certain buzzwords that don't work in certain circles, and so you have to learn to speak the language of whatever context you're in. So um, kingdom, if you want to, no pun intended here, but it does work. Uh, kingdom is a yellow letter word and fire is a red letter word <laughs> am, among evangelicals. Okay. And so, the, I, you know, some of my donors just said, look, you, you've just got to lose the kingdom fire thing. It just isn't working at all. But the reason I initially called it kingdom fire was um, what we do and what we teach is strongly based on the teaching of the kingdom of God. Uh, as Jesus taught it in the in the Gospels, and then later, I would say, expanded upon by the apostles, particularly through the Book of Acts. But I, I think the way to interpret the Book of Acts is with the sidelights of the various letters of Paul, kind of backing and filling the stories. And here's kind of what Paul is reflecting back to them later. If you kind of read the Book of Acts and the letters of Paul with that understanding, Kingdom is very strongly uh, running through all of those as well. And then the fire, that, that's its own story. But, um, you know, I, I would say for people who aren't maybe up for hearing the whole story right now, I'd just say John the Baptist said that he baptized in water, Jesus would baptize in fire. And so uh, there is kind of this dimension to what sometimes happens in the meetings that I lead. Uh, but we renamed it Orbis, and I got that name because I had a dream. And we actually did a bunch of market research. Uh, one of the donors who didn't like the Kingdom Fire name paid for all that. And so we did all the things that Coca-Cola or General Motors or whoever you want to name would do, Apple Computer, kind of testing and retesting and verifying and validating. And, um, and in the midst of it all, uh, Orbis was a name that came to me. So we threw the, it on the list along with all the other stuff. And Orbis was the one that actually did the best and it came from a dream. So I was like, mm, this must be God. So here we are, Orbis Ministries. Nice. Interesting. <laughs> I didn't know that. Cool. Thanks for sharing. Okay. Yep. So now the word fire in your ministry, you wanna, yeah. why don't we jump in on the deep end? What does that mean? Why is that relevant? What did, what did you mean when you said that that plays out in your ministry? Well, um, I don't make a lot of it these days. I, I used to talk about it more and it not unlike the name kingdom fire, it was creating a lot of issues with certain uh, groups of people that I was ministering to. And um, you know, I, the Lord's, the Lord's given me a very strange kind of life. Uh, I certainly didn't seek this. I was a corporate executive and I mean, I worked for fortune 500 companies with, you know, known household names and, you know, I was, officer of these companies and so forth. And, 
it all sort of blew up in 2008 when we had our last great economic collapse. And uh, the, the backstory, even going back further than that, I am getting to your question, but I'm trying to give <laughs> some runway so people have context. Yeah, totally. Um, anyway, so I was a corporate executive and I was, I mean, I was a devout, sincere Christian. And even though I had that career, I used to do probably four conferences a year of my own that I would lead. And then, you know, sometimes bring in other speakers, sometimes it'd just be me. Uh, I would also commonly do maybe a comparable number of uh, church retreats or offsites or something like that. I was advising denominations on growth strategies and things like that. And then on top of all of it, I was preaching in uh, churches as what would be called in a more traditional context, a supply preacher. So pastor's going to be out and there's nobody in the, in the house to kind of take the place. I know you're rooted in, you know, Bethel. And so with that, um, you know, you guys have a multi-staff church, you have depth on the bench, but a lot of, a lot of churches don't have that. And so when they need to, you know, have something go on and they're, the pastor's going to be away, they need someone from the outside. So I was, I was being a supply preacher about 25 times a year. So roughly every other week. Wow. And that's on top of the conferences, that's on top of the retreats, that's on top of all the other stuff. So I had a really active ministry while I was earning a living in the business world. And wow. sometimes people used to say to me, you know, how do you do all that? And, you know, you're amazing and all this. And I'd say, well, look, my mentor was John Wimber. And I used to say, look, John told us that this is what we're supposed to do. I mean, we're believers and we are committed to the cause of Jesus. We're committed to, he used to say three C's, Christ, his church, and his cause, those three things. So we make our devotion to him individually. Then we are committed to his organization and his body called the church. And then his cause is the wider enterprise of evangelizing the world and you know doing the works of Jesus, et cetera. So I said, this is just what everybody should do. And they said, no, 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 what you're doing is something totally different from that. And so we would go around and around and I just, I don't know. I was just doing what I knew how to do really. Um, but I was very, very busy in ministry. And, uh, and as I said, things kind of fell apart during the 2008 economic uh, collapse or recession. I think they called it the Great Recession. And now with what's going on in our country, and I would say actually across the world, I don't know if this is still properly a recession or a depression or an obsession or a, I don't know what it is. <laughs> whatever it is, we got that going on. Yeah. So it's been about 10 years since I started uh, the organization. And the Lord's just opened a lot of doors. And so I, I'm not just with renewal stream people like Bethel or Global Awakening or whatever. I mean, I preach at Rick Joyner's usually for two full weeks a year. I teach in his ministry school in the spring and in the fall. I preach, wow. you know, there's services. We hold special meetings. I do a lot of work with, uh, with Rick and his team. Um, I know Mike Bickle. I know uh, John Arnott and Carol Arnott. So, I mean, I, I, I know all of these folks, but, um, but I, beyond the renewal streams that your listeners would likely know well, the Lord's opened doors so that I'm often in front of senior level Catholic prelates. Uh, I do a lot of work with the Anglican church, which is also known as the church of England. Um, I, at the moment I'm not doing a lot with, but have done a lot with Lutherans, 
Uh, I do a lot with Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists. So God's given me this incredibly wide spectrum. And I think some of that is, I don't know, I think it rubbed off on me from John Wimber because John had a very, very broad ministry that that reached into every corner of the church. Mm-hmm. And he he used to say, you know, we're called to love the whole body of Christ. Jesus is coming back for a big bride, which of course is a double entendre with a humorous <laughs> twist to it. But anyway, um, this is where we are. And so, you know, I, I, I love the whole body of Christ. I love Christians. I, we are we are very imperfect people. And boy, if you do what I do, you travel around, you get into some of these church contexts. I mean, you see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And there's a lot of bad and ugly, unfortunately. But um, notwithstanding all that, uh, God loves his people. And he wants to clean things up, straighten them out. And so I go where the Lord opens doors. And Jesus said um, that the wind blows where it wills. But the word for wind is the same as the word for spirit in Greek. So the spirit blows where he wills. And so it is with everyone born of the spirit. And so I, I often feel as though I'm like a leaf fallen from a tree in the autumn and bouncing down the street, driven along by the wind of God. And I don't always know where I'm going to land. Nice. Love it. That's fascinating. I love the clownfish thing going on where you're just passing through all kinds of barriers that other people potentially wouldn't be invited in. Now, how does the fire thing come into play? Yeah. So um, there's, there's a couple layers to this. When I was still at Princeton uh, as a student, I, was, I, I entered the university planning to become a quantum physicist. <laughs> <laughs> and I, yeah, that's right. This is real. Uh, so I was, I was gonna, I was studying physics. I was studying chemistry. I was studying solid state physics. I was in those days, semiconductors were known, but they were, I mean, computing was nothing like what we have today. You know, you couldn't do the kind of broadcast we're doing right now because we didn't have processing power sufficient, but I was interested in things like quantum tunneling and, uh, you know, valent states, et cetera quantum computing. This was starting to be talked about. So I was interested in all of that. And that's where I was going. And I was, you know, making my way through the university curriculum that you do if you're kind of pointed in that direction. And uh, in the autumn of 1979, let me make sure I'm giving you the right year. Uh, Yeah, the autumn of 1979, um, I woke up one morning and I don't remember the day of the month or the date of the month, but it was certainly October because the leaves were changing and there was frost on the ground. And I remember it being very, you know, it was a cold morning, but the leaves were still up and, you know, the world was in color. And uh, I woke up and I was having an open vision. And the open vision was, it lasted for three days without, without going away. And uh, I left my room where, you know, I lived and slept and studied. And uh, I was walking from there to what we called the E-quad, the engineering quadrangle. And, and you know, I'm, I, as I'm going out of my room, I mean, this vision was there when I woke. But as I'm outside, I'm looking around and everywhere I'm looking, I'm seeing it. And it was fiery letters about, now your, your listeners can't see me. So maybe from the top of my head to my heart. So that's maybe something like 18 to 20 inches, let's call it two feet to be uh, just rounded off, about two feet high and roughly maybe three to four inches thick. And they were on fire. And, uh, and there was one single word there, just one word, seminary. 
And so, you know, I'm studying quantum physics and I'm seeing this word seminary on fire. And I walk into the first lecture that day and I sit down and the professor is talking. And as I'm looking at the professor and looking at the board, you know, where the writing is going on, I can see all that, but I'm looking as it were through the vision, which is superimposed on what I'm there to do, right? What I'm seeing in the natural has this supernatural imposition upon it. And so um, I'm looking through these fiery letters. And as I say, it lasted for three days. Everything I did, everywhere I went, if I was working out or running, if I'm sitting in lecture, if I'm in the library studying, if I'm in the you know dining hall eating, if I'm in the shower showering, no matter where I look, no matter what I do, I'm seeing this. And when I lay down to sleep, when I close my eyes, I'm still seeing this burning fiery vision until I drop off of the edge of consciousness and I'm now asleep and then it's in my dreams. I can't get away from this thing. And after three days, the vision lifted. And so that was my first um, encounter with something that had to do with the fire of God. There have been some others since then, but uh, with that, I concluded being a highly intuitive person uh, with a, I guess, a you know, reasonable intelligence or I wouldn't have been studying where I was God was calling me to seminary. <laughs> and so I didn't know what that meant, really. I mean, I knew what sem- I knew that was where people went to study for the ministry. But to be honest, I didn't really want to do that. I-, I-, I couldn't have been less interested in going to seminary. I wanted to be... When that was happening, was an open vision normal for you? Was it the first time that it ever happened? Did you have a grid for this? Or what was your response to the fact that you had fiery letters over your vision for three days? Um, I had had things like that, but never that lengthy or that profound. And, you know, there've been a lot of times in my life where things have happened where I've gone, did that really happen? Or, you know, is that really what God wants? Or did I make the right decision? But that's one of those anchor things in my life. It's like looking at your birth certificate and knowing your birth date. I've never, ever once ever doubted that God wanted me to go to seminary. Now, what that meant, that's a different conversation because, For me, uh, like I say, I didn't really want to go into the ministry. So I was like, okay, I'm going to obey God because he's God and I have to obey him. I'll go to seminary. But I really had no clear sense of what I was going to do afterward. And so, you know, when I was admitted, they want to know, well, you know, where is your call to ministry, right? You wouldn't be here if you're not called to the ministry. I'm like, I don't know if I'm called to the ministry. I'm here because God told me to come. And I mean, literally, the admissions committee is like, what are you talking about? That you don't know if you're going to go into the ministry. Why else would you be here? And I'm like, I'm here because God told me to come. Well, they weren't used to having people say, God told me to come. That wasn't part of their world. So we're already (laughs) having this conflict of, you know, how do we relate to God and how does he speak to us, right? Well, anyway, I got in and I went. Um, And I would say it was a good thing that the Lord had given me such a profound and transcendent experience because I struggled with many of the attitudes and mindsets that I ran into because much of the way academic theology, academic training for the ministry is conducted, I would say, is steeped in a a deep skepticism about everything from the veracity of scripture to whether God is really even real. Um, and I mean, some seminaries are better than others. It depends on where you go and how liberal the seminary is, all of that. But, but they're even in the conservative seminaries, many of them are, they have no expectation that, you know, God might actually break in or speak to you or direct you to do something or, 
you know, that you would have an Ananias of Damascus experience like Acts chapter 9 where he goes and prays for Paul or that you might be like Philip and you get sent down to the, you know, the road that leads to Gaza and you encounter some high-ranking official. I mean, this is not even part of the conversation. Mm. And so all of this becomes a very, it's just, I'm speaking French and they're speaking Greek, right? It's that kind of a thing that's going on. And so all that had to get meshed and synchronized. And some people on this broadcast probably would know the name Bob Jones. Mm. And one time I was talking to Bob and I said, Bob, God told me to go to seminary and I did it. But why did he tell me to do that? And Bob just kind of looked at me and anyone who may remember him or has seen videos of him, he had these kind of beady eyes. (laughs) He kind of leaned in and he said, well, it got you in the scripture for three years, didn't it? (laughs) <laughs> so there was that, which was worthwhile. I'm not, I'm not in any way suggesting it wasn't worthwhile, but it was a very stretching experience. And, and I was challenged in many ways, even as I probably challenged many of my peers and professors. And um, I'm just glad I had that undergirding of this calling, this fiery vision, because I think there would have been at least 40 or 50 times when I would have dropped out because of the the level of, you know, that mental conflict that was going on, mm. different approaches to things. Yeah. Now I think, you know, at this point in life, I've, I've done a reasonable job of somehow finding synchronicity between those two. But it was not an easy and straightforward process. And I think the thing that I would want to say to anybody who's listening to this podcast is, you know, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out mean, I mean, think of going to the gym. I mean, sometimes you have a hard workout and it, you, it doesn't feel good. It burns or a day later, two days later, you're still sore. And sometimes obeying God is not easy. I know he's good. I have no doubt about his fatherhood and how he loves me and all of that. But, you know, sometimes with the things that the Lord wants you to do, or directs you to do, or guides you to do, especially if they aren't really what you had in mind, this can create significant conversation between you and your father. Totally. Totally, for sure. I'm often reminded of Jonah the prophet. You know, if you, if you study the story of Jonah, we all know the book of Jonah. We know the story of the, you know, the whale. But there's a passage in the Old Testament that actually mentions him in the Chronicles of the Kings. and most people are unaware of this unless they're really Bible beavers and read a lot of scripture. But, um, but Jonah is mentioned. And as it turns out, he, he's the court prophet to King Jeroboam the second. And just to refresh the memories of people, Jeroboam the first was the King of Israel who split away from Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the son of David. And so that's where the North kingdom comes from, from Jeroboam one. Well, some, you know, some centuries, about a century and a half later, there's another king, and his name is Jeroboam the uh, second. And he's in the scripture, he's just called Jeroboam, and it's up to you to figure out that he's the second Jeroboam, not the first <laughs> Jeroboam. But anyway, um, and it tells us that Jonah, the son of Amittai, was the prophet to King Jeroboam. God had placed him strategically in the court. And it says that as long as Jeroboam heeded the word of the Lord by Jonah, he prospered in all that he did. And so much was this the case that the empire of Israel, the north kingdom, not Judah, the north kingdom, the breakaway kingdom, 
it expanded to a height of power that was unseen since the days of King Solomon, so much so that even Damascus fell under the, the purview or you know, became a vassal state, a client area to the king of Israel, King Jeroboam. And so this is the life that Jonah is leading. I mean, he's in favor, he's large and in charge. You know, he's got the word of the Lord. Jeroboam, the king, has learned to listen to Jonah and everything that he tells him, Jeroboam immediately does it and more prosperity comes, whatever that means. Military success, you know, business ventures, trading deals with the Phoenicians or the Greeks. I mean, all of it is coming in big. And so, you know, Jonah is living life large. And then we get to the book of Jonah and Jonah 1.1 says this, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And if you know the context, and most people don't, but if you know that context I just told you, there's a real sense of, oh, no, right? Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. It's like, okay, Jonah, you've been a hot rock prophet, prophet to the king. That's the good news. And here's more good news. You're getting an upgrade. You're about to become an international prophet. Your ministry's going to the global scale. Your metron is increasing. That's all good news. Here's the bad news, Jonah. You've got to go to Nineveh, that great city, Nineveh, where they're violent, that, that empire that's rising that is threatening the kingdom. In fact, you know all about it, Jonah, because you've been sitting at the king's table, and you hear all the inner conversations of the king and his military advisors and his diplomats as they come and they go. You know out about all of that, and Jonah, this is your new assignment. And Jonah's like, I don't want that assignment. So what does he do? He books passage to Tarshish, and he tries to go 2,000 miles to the west, all the way to Spain. And the Lord's like, nice idea, not so much. And so God, what does he do? He sends the storm. Jonah gets thrown into the sea, the fish. We all know the story. Ultimately, Jonah yields to the leading that God has given him. It's more than a leading. It's a, it's a sending. It's a commissioning. And with that, I often say kind of jokingly, do you really want to be a prophet? Because to have you know, that sort of thing going on in your life means God puts you on an immensely short chain. And yeah. things that maybe other people get to do, you might not get to do. Mm. Things, your life is no longer your own. You were bought with a price. You know, Paul even says this. And so with that comes a, a kind of an obedience that maybe you never even thought about. And God may have to do some rather, I don't know. I, I, again, we know that God loves us, but, but he's still a king. He's still our father. He still gets to call the shots. He, he may at times do things to persuade you that your idea wasn't the best idea you ever had. Totally. Okay. Now I want to ask, maybe get a little more pointed here on all this. Cause I know we can go in so many directions. Um, and I know you don't want to be pigeonholed as this is all you do. And I know this is not all you do. So I want to make it nice and clear. This is not all that Ken does, <laughs> but <laughs> and I know you have some notoriety in the deliverance circles where people experience radical deliverance in your ministry, like under your preaching and direct ministry and all that. Um, can you just maybe in a broad stroke for the people listening who might not have a huge grid for this, can you just lay a foundation of what that means in your world? What does deliverance ministry even mean? All right. Um, deliverance is a term that is in many quarters out of favor. And so it doesn't really get talked about much at all. But deliverance is, it's the ministry Jesus had. It's the ministry the apostles had of driving out evil spirits. And, you know, that one statement that I just made, it probably needs to be unpacked. 
because um, when I teach conferences on this, you know, there are, there are, there are biblical demons and there are New York times demons. Biblical demons are demons like Jesus and Paul encountered and others. Um, Philip ran into quite a few of them when he was in Samaria in Acts chapter eight, it says with loud shrieks and cries, evil spirits came out of many evil spirits. They have an existence. The, the technical uh, philosophical term is an ontology it comes from the Greek word on, which means ground of being. Oh, there's, a new, um, there's a new noise now. Yeah, that one's that one. I can't turn off. It's my, uh, it's my text stream. Okay. Let me, let me, that's one of my staff. Let me just tell them, do not text me right now. <laughs> can I think if you just mute your laptop, those notifications can still happen and you just won't hear it. Yeah. But if I do that, I think the sound goes off. I don't think it does. I think your microphone will still work. Well, I can try it. Let's see. Um, <laughs> okay. Can you hear me? Yep. I can't hear you. You can't hear me? Oh. I, can't, I see you moving, but I can't hear you. Okay, that'll do it. So that's not going to work. Okay, uh, well, then we'll just endure the beeping. No worries. Sorry, guys. There's going to be beeping happening. Yeah. It's all right. There's probably a way to do it that I don't know. You'd think for a guy that wanted to be a quantum physicist, I'd know how to do that. <laughs> but anyway, I have this newer uh, computer I got at the start of COVID, and it's great. I love it. It's about 50% faster than my old computer. Nice. But but I haven't figured out how to make all this stuff uh, <laughs> doing its thing. That's great. Sorry. So you're talking about Philip, Samaria, demons, schlob yeah. freaks. Yeah. So we've got New York Times demons oh, and we've got enough. biblical demons. Biblical yeah. demons have ontology. They have a ground of being separate from their host. Mm. And when they manifest, which simply means to make themselves observable or they act up, in, in you know normal English vernacular, when they when they do something that betrays their existence and their presence, when that goes on, um, it's often well, it's often unsettling. It can be somewhat dramatic. And these demons, they have a will of their own. They have appetites that they seek to express through whichever host they are inhabiting. And um, you know sometimes it's pretty far out. I mean it's. It's not your normal state of existence, but they are real and they're different from the sort of demons that you sometimes see preachers do, dealing with or attempting to deal with, uh, maybe from a platform where they're marching back and forth, microphone in hand, and they're saying, Satan, we rebuke you and we command all of the lust in the room to go and, you know, all this kind of thing, greed, you know, whatever it might be. It could be any number of things they're addressing. Um, some of that might have some reality to it, but sometimes that's just showmanship and there isn't really any deliverance going on. When deliverance goes on, if you look at the examples of it in the ministry of Jesus, the gospel of Mark in particular is full of examples of deliverance. Luke also has them and so does Matthew, but Mark really focuses on the demonic and the power of Jesus over demons. And so he has more stories like this than anywhere, and he even says at the end of his gospel, um, these signs will accompany those who believe in my name, they will cast out evil spirits. That's the number one sign of a believer, according to Mark, in his version of the Great Commission found in Mark 16. So, um, so when we talk about 
evil spirits. I mean real evil spirits that sometimes will vocalize through the host, not always, but sometimes. Uh, commonly, they will manifest and reveal themselves in strange and untoward ways that could include, for example, superhuman strength, like with the Gadarene demoniac who is mentioned in Mark chapter 5, or they may rob someone of the ability to speak or to have executive control of their own body, like the boy that Jesus delivers in Mark chapter 9. And so, you know, when these evil spirits do their thing, well, they do their thing and they, they look like those evil spirits. New York Times demons, by contrast, would be, you know, let's say somebody dies. I mean, we all know the sad and sordid tale of Harvey Weinstein. Um, so, you know, you could, you could imagine, I don't think, I don't think the times actually did it with him, but you could imagine Harvey Weinstein and you could think of maybe an obituary or someone writing a column about him saying, well, you know, he never really dealt with his internal demons Mm. and with just a little more counseling and a little more Prozac or whatever other psychotropic drug we want to use. Uh, he might have been okay, but you know, he just never really got there. And it's such a shame that he ended that way. That is not what I am talking about. I mean, those people need deliverance too, but the, the whole paradigm is very different. I'm not operating from a psychological paradigm. I'm not operating from a self-help paradigm. I'm operating from a theological paradigm in which there is literal power, divine power from the Holy Spirit that comes in and there is a conflict between the power of the spirit and the powers of darkness. And it, it, as it were, it's like being on the front lines of battle and you can hear, I'm speaking figuratively, the clash of swords and the, you know, the ring of shields as, you know, you know, that, that battle line is joined. And, and I think that a lot of the teaching on deliverance that's out there in the church simply doesn't take account of the fact that there are real demons. They're not just up there floating around and we sort of generically rebuke them. And they are far more than just what we think of as somebody who couldn't come to terms with their stuff. Um, These demons actually do damage in people's lives and they can control people in varying degrees from low to high. At the higher end, you get the gathering demoniac living in the graveyard. At the lower end, people may seemingly get along or deal with life. They somehow cope, but they're actually not really coping. They're in bondage. They're held captive by the enemy. And so we see an example of this in Jesus' um, ministry in Capernaum. He's returned from his own baptism, his own temptation by Satan in the wilderness. And Luke 4.14 tells us, that at the end of those temptations, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this doesn't just mean that he was fired up or that he was some sort of awesome preacher who could get people, you know, whipped into a frenzy. I mean, Mm. maybe he had that ability, maybe he didn't. But when I talk about the power of the Spirit, I think about what Paul says. My message and my preaching were were not only with wise words of human wisdom. Paul was a wise man and he had wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power. Demonstration means something you can observe, something that has, well, if you will, a tangibility to it or a verifiability to it or a, mm. something like that. 
in order that your faith would not rest only on the wisdom of men and the words of men, but on the power of God. And then he goes on, 1 Corinthians, that was 1 Corinthians 2, 4. He goes on and he finishes out that thought. It's kind of a lengthy passage in the front part of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 4.20, for the kingdom of God, there's, there it is, kingdom fire ministries, right? The kingdom of God does not consist of words and talk. It consists of power. And so when we're talking about deliverance, we are talking about direct power encounter between God and whatever these spirits may be, where they are. Now, they're not, they're not universal. They're not ubiquitous, but they're a lot more common than most people realize there's a direct conflict between the spirit of the living God, the Holy Spirit, as he confronts these evil spirits through believers and drives them out with the objective that those who are held in captivity, who are in bondage, would be set free. And so in Jesus' ministry, he returns in the power of the spirit from the wilderness, and it says in Mark one twenty one, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority is not, and not as the scribes. He wasn't just quoting everybody else. He wasn't just reciting the latest social media you know, meme or blurb or whatever. There was something, Jesus had something to say that was grounded in revelation flowing out of him. It was rooted in scripture, because Jesus was a man of the scripture, but there was also a live source of revelation. And so when he spoke, it's like, he would say things like, you have heard it said this, but I tell you this. And so he, he might you know, clarify Moses, or he would take something from the prophets. And so he was teaching this way, and it says, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Well, this is a, this is a believer of the type that they had in those days. And he's attending the synagogue in Capernaum. And if you go to Israel today, you can walk into that synagogue. I mean, the, the, the part that you walk into today was rebuilt, refurbished, remodeled in the fourth century. But the foundations of that synagogue are right there. You can see them, and you can see where they did the refurb on top of it. But you can see the dimensions of that synagogue, and you know somewhere in this little area here is where this story happened that I'm reading right now. And so this man has an unclean spirit, and it says he cried out. So to cry out means to you know raise your voice, uh, maybe to gesticulate, so, ah! you know, kind of thing. And he says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to torment us before the time? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This this demon is acting out. And and I'm 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 acting it out for the podcast because I really want to drive this point home. You know, so many people think that demons are just like, New York Times demons. Well, you know, I'm kind of bothered with this thing. Now, at, at the lower level, it, it'll be only that. But this man's a little further up the scale, and Jesus silences him, and he says, come out of him and watch this. The unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. So to convulse means to tear, to shake violently. And you can see me doing it on the video. Our yeah. viewers can't see me doing that. Right. And he cries out with a loud voice, not just a voice, but a loud voice. So this is like, Aah! and the evil spirit leaves. Now, in our modern paradigms of deliverance, a lot of people say, well, you know, you don't have to put up with that. You just shut that demon down. Really, apparently, Jesus didn't get the memo. 
because Jesus told that spirit, be silent and come out. Well, it was silent to the point of no longer saying you're the Holy One of God, but it was not silent upon exit. It was screaming and carrying on, shaking the man and throwing him to the ground. And so people say, well, you just bind the spirits and tell them they can't do that. And so we have this paradigm that has become a thing, although it's really not a thing, um, called quiet deliverance. Not everybody calls it that, but that's what I call it. And the idea is that when evil spirits leave, there shouldn't really be any shaking or screaming or carrying on. And I would say to that, it's great when you can get that to happen. And in a minority of cases, it might. But the vast majority of true, honest to God, driving out ontological, biblical demons that I've ever seen, I mean, this is like, this is what it looks like. And again, people say, well, you know, after the Pentecost experience and with us now having the Holy Spirit, we just don't have to have that. And I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. Did somebody tell that to Paul? Because he didn't get the memo either. And the example that I'm thinking about is Acts chapter, what is it? 13, 15, 17, when he goes into Philippi and he casts the fortune-telling spirit out of the slave girl and the spirit comes out. This spirit had been acting out. This is Acts 16. I named every chapter, but the right one. But Paul has that. And when Philip is in Samaria, also post-resurrection, and Philip very likely was in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. I mean, he becomes one of the seven that are, you know, if you will, ordained by the 12 apostles to care for the poor and the widows and whatnot. But but then he goes on and has a very powerful evangelistic ministry in Samaria. It says, with loud shrieks and cries, evil spirits came out of many. Well, why is it that they're shrieking and crying loudly if quiet deliverance was the New Testament norm? It just doesn't fit the biblical witness. It's become a concept or a construct or a paradigm that we've laid down over Scripture I think more than anything to try to quiet the sensibilities of white middle-class Christians who are used to a rather sanitary church experience. Ooh, nice. Okay, I have so many questions, Ken. Here's the deal, though. We gotta I've got land- ton more stories to buttress that last statement. Yeah, listen, we're going to do a part two. I'm going to wrap up this episode, and then we're going to jump right back on here, and we're going to record part two. I have so many questions, and I want to hear stories as well and all that. Um, but before we wrap up this episode, I wanted to give you the opportunity while we're in the middle of deliverance and the differences between demons and, you know, mindsets and whatever. Um, this podcast is called confessions of a reformer. Um, so I want to give you uh, an opportunity to get to share a confession with the audience. Maybe, you know, there's, maybe you should have two different confessions, Ken, because maybe this one can be more just what people have heard thus far. And then the next one can, you can get a little wilder, right? Um, but is there any kind of confession along your way in any of the arenas you've been operating in or things you've encountered or whatever that you're like, yeah, you know what? I don't really know about this. Or I don't like this. I don't... Obviously, you've shared some confessions on things you don't like. But... <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, one of the hardest things about this side of the ministry I have, and, and there are other facets to it, I absolutely do not want people to go away thinking all I'm about is demons. Mm. In fact, John Wimber used to say, don't seek to be known as a deliverance minister. It attracts strange people and it will suck you down a hole that you don't want to be in. Nevertheless, I think if we're going to have a ministry that looks like Jesus or the apostles, then we actually do need to be doing deliverance. Mm. Not only because we see it modeled in scripture, that alone would be enough reason to do it. 
but because one of my go-to sayings and anyone who's been around me or seen me teach on this or been to my meetings where people are being delivered of evil spirits. Um, one of my go-to sayings is this, when deliverance is what you need, nothing else will do. Mm. Inner healing won't do. Bible memorization won't do. Taking more communion won't do. Claiming and confessing won't do. Worshiping longer won't do. When you need deliverance, the only thing that will make it over the line is deliverance, to push those evil spirits out, to drive them out. Mm. It's interesting, you know, Lou Engels made uh, made a lot of uh, of the word ekbalo, and, you know, he's using it properly to, to thrust out laborers into the harvest field. But the same word ekbalo is used of demons, to thrust them out, to force them out of those that they inhabit. And when people have evil spirits, these are literal spiritual strongholds, but they can be unbelievably powerful. And so for people who have these kinds of bondages in their life, you know, as I said, confessing, inner healing, communion, these are all good things. I'm not in any way taking a shot at them. We should do them all, but they will not solve this problem. The only thing that solves a demonic problem is deliverance. And so when deliverance is what you need, nothing else will do. I don't like that truth. I don't like it because a lot of times people look at me and they're like, he's weird or he's extreme or, you know, he's too hard line, or he's this, or he's that, or he's too militaristic, or whatever. But I don't like people to judge me that way. I want people to like me. I, I like liking people, and I like being liked. And, you know, I, I have those needs too. But I've also learned that this is exactly what the ministry of Jesus and the apostles looks like. And I've seen so many thousands of people, literally tens of thousands of people, set free of everything from mental illnesses to physical maladies to sexual deviancy, and I could just go on, but I'm just naming three kind of big bucket areas that, I mean, on the other hand, you go, why wouldn't you want to do this? Because it's, it's oftentimes the thing that you need when nothing else is working. Mm. That's my confession. Totally. I love it. Thank you for sharing. That's awesome. So good. Okay. So I'm going to, we're going to land this episode. Um, you guys, thank you for checking us out. Um, be sure to like comment and subscribe, leave us a review. Um, love that you guys are joining us here. Um, and, uh, we will see you next time. <laughs> I'm going to jump right into the second episode. Are you good? Yeah, that's fine. Okay, great. Um, Hello and welcome to Confessions of a Reformer. I'm your host, Mike Mayashiro, and we've got a special guest on today. If you checked out the previous episode on this uh, podcast, you know it was Ken Fish. We were getting into talking about deliverance and demons and, you know, what does it look like in the church and all, the, all that. We were in the middle of that and we had to wrap up the episode. So I'm going to pick up right where we left off with Ken now. Um, I'm going to just jump right in, you guys. So I'm not going to do the traditional intros and all that on this, but um, we're going to get right back into it. Uh, for those of you who didn't hear and learn who Ken was, you can go back to the, the previous episode to part one of this. <laughs> um, we were talking about demons and deliverance and all that. Ken, I've got some questions. I know you have a lot to share on the subject. You've got lots of stories and I want to get, get to hear those things. Um, but in some of the things you've shared in the previous episode, I wanted to ask you, um, when it comes to deliverance, you talk about demons and, you know, there, there being lower or higher levels of involvement or whatever. What would you say to a believer who says, who's, you know, like fighting for the idea that there's a difference between oppression and possession. What is your commentary on that? I don't use those categories. 
as in because you, you think that both are the same thing or well, no because that word neither of those words occurs in the bible okay it occurs in our english bibles mm. but there's a story behind that in 1611 the king james bible was translated at the directive of king james the first you know he was like many kings a humble man who <laughs> didn't want to name things after himself <laughs> so he authorized a translation of the bible that's why we also call the kjv the king james version the authorized version or the AB, but that was done in 1611. Hmm. Um, it, that translation itself built upon some earlier translations that had been rendered during the Middle Ages. Uh, one of the more uh, popular ones was the Tyndale Bible. There was the Coverdale Bible. Uh, we could go on and talk about Bible translation, but bottom line, by the time we get to the King James Version in 1611, it literally becomes the reference standard for Bible translation right up into the 20th century. And, and by the way, the later 20th century. And so when I was a boy, I mean, people were still only reading the King James Bible. They had come out with the Revised Standard Version. Some of the mainline churches were using that. But even translations like the Revised Standard the New American Standard, um, to an extent, well, to a great extent, the English Standard Version. M many of them, if you read the, the foreword to the Bible, you know, those sort of five or six pages at the very front of the Bible where they talk about their principles in translation. Mm. Uh, they, nearly every one of them, if you, if you read, it will say something kind of like this. Uh, you know, we have attempted to follow the uh, broad translation tradition of the authorized version or the King James version with its soaring turns of phrase, its beautiful poetry and its mellifluous prose. And so they, you know, kind of use that sort of language. Again, this is in the first five or six pages that gives you the, the front end. I mean, I could show it to you in the Bible I have open right here, right now. Um, and, and with that, they say we have attempted to retain the principles of translation of the King James Version, which is a way of saying we don't want to go too far from what has really been the reference standard because it was a pretty darn good translation, and it was. Um, King James had gotten a bunch of scholars who really knew their stuff. He had them collaborate in teams, and they, you know, the, no one was working in teams in those days, but you know, nowadays that's a fundamental of modern management theory. Mm. So they worked in teams, and you know, they came up with this translation using the best manuscripts they could find, since then, there have been some new textual discoveries that in some cases have uh, clarified our understanding of the scriptures. But even to this day, when we talk about modern translations, anything that is a true and authentic translation, to a very great degree, is going to have things that sound a bit like the King James, actually sound a lot like the King James. Now, if you go to something that's more of a paraphrase, just to be clear, something like the New Living Translation, the Message, and I'm probably treading on dangerous ground here, but even the Passion Translation, these are not true translations. They are more paraphrases. They are trying to work from the original languages, but they're not trying to render word for word what's being said. They're actually trying to give you more of a dynamic equivalent, the general sense of what's happening here without hewing to the actual letter of the scripture. And by the way, I am friends with Brian and Candace Simmons, so I'm not taking a swipe at them. I'm just... <laughs> clarifying what I mean by translation versus paraphrase. Yeah. All right. So because of all of that, this genuflecting to the King James, when they translated the King James version in 1611, which is 409 years ago, 
um, one of the terms that they use to describe these interactions with demons is demon possession. And so if you read the King James or the, or the Revised Standard or, you know, the New American Standard, you will see the term demon possessed. And so they, this, is, this is the way they understood it in the late Middle Ages, that an evil spirit came upon you and took possession of you. But in a way, they weren't really grappling with what's going on in the Greek text. The Greek word is daimonizomai, and it means to be demonized or to come under the influence of a demon, which could be oppression. In some cases, it might rise all the way to possession. But neither of these terms is actually in Scripture. The only word that is in Scripture is demonized. And so the English Standard Version, which is my current favorite working translation, the English Standard Version will use the term demonized, but even not in the main text. It'll always put it in the footnote. So you'll see the word demon-possessed in the main text where they've translated it, but then they'll put a little footnote marker, and you go down to the footnote, and it'll say, Greek, demonized, here and also in verse 16 or 19 or, you know, whatever else that part of that passage is, to be under the influence of an evil spirit. And so what happens is Christians can come under the influence of an evil spirit, and that influence may be lesser or greater, and it depends on some factors. One of them is what part of the Christian is being influenced. Now, when we talk about the human system, Christian or non-Christian, we need to think about three big buckets. Bucket one is the spirit man or spirit woman, depending on your, your gender. Uh, the second bucket is the soul, and the second bucket, uh, third bucket is the body. So spirit, soul, body. And Paul even acknowledges this explicitly at the end of 1 Thessalonians 5, I can't remember right now, is it verse 21 or 23? It's one or the other. But Paul is saying a closing prayer to the Thessalonian church, or for the Thessalonian church. He says, now may the God of peace sanctify you, make you holy. May he purify you completely, spirit, soul, and body. He's writing to Christians. And so he, he is himself reflecting that understanding of the human system. There are other places in Scripture where that understanding arises, but, but Paul makes it really, really clear in 1 Thessalonians 5. <clears throat> so he says, may you be sanctified, spirit, soul, and body. Well, for a Christian, when they believe in Jesus, their dead spirit man, the one that is dead in transgressions and sins, that is made alive because of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And so in this sense, an evil spirit cannot influence or possess the spirit man or spirit woman of a Christian. can't happen because the Holy Spirit is in there, and an evil spirit and the Holy Spirit won't coexist in the same, uh, in the same place, mm. spatially or uh, spiritually. But when we move to the soul, now, this is a whole different can of worms. And classically in Christian theology, many people aren't that well-schooled in uh, Christian theology, but it, classically the way the church has understood the soul is that the soul itself has three parts. The first part is the mind. The second part is the emotions. And the third part is the will. And Christians can actually come under the influence of an evil spirit in any of these three broad areas. I actually think it breaks down into seven pieces because we have the past, present, and future mind, uh, 
We have the past, present, and future emotions. And then we have the will. So that's three, three, and one is seven. And so when we talk about demonization, evil spirits can gain purchase or influence. Uh, purchase not like to buy, but it's an older use of the term. It's like a foothold or a, or a handhold. Evil spirits gain a stronghold in someone's life because something has happened either in the realm of the emotions or of the mind and sometimes in the will. In the past, maybe in the present because of things that are going on right now, and maybe there's even a future context to it, an anticipatory piece to it. All of that can be the zone of demonization. And so um, are those Christians possessed? No, they're not possessed. Are they influenced? Absolutely. And anybody who's ever done any real work in the church pastorally knows that there are these people. They just can't seem to break out of that stuff. They're trying, they're claiming, they're confessing, they're decreeing, they're taking communion, they're praying more, they're getting sozo. I mean, they're doing everything, but they're not actually getting free of that demonic entanglement because it is a stronghold and they need to be liberated. In fact, the word for deliverance in Spanish is liberación. It's very clear what they mean by it when they say it in Spanish. Okay, and Ken, so, I've got, remember when I was talking about those trails that pop out? Yeah, yeah, I've got yeah. questions, man. Do you want to keep going or should I interrupt you? Well, let me just wrap okay, that up. Okay, keep going, go ahead. And the last zone of, of demonization can be the human body. And there are times, and the scripture even reveals them clearly in the Gospels, where people have physical maladies, literal diseases, symptoms, whatever, and that condition is caused by an evil spirit that is afflicting the body. So Paul needed to pray for them to be sanctified spirit, soul, and body, because in any of these three zones, now again, they're, when they're, once they're born again, that's okay, but what we really want is for the Holy Spirit to take dominion in our spirit man or spirit woman to such a degree that we actually start to reflect the fruit and character and all that of Jesus. And so that's what's happening in the spirit man. We're not talking about driving out evil spirits in believers. But boy, in the soul and in the body, yeah, many, many, many times we've run into this. And there are actually places in the scripture that point to believers um, having these kinds of interactions with evil spirits and needing to be freed from that you know, power or that oppression or that subjugation or demonization. It's the best word for it because it's the biblical word for it. Nice. Okay. Wow. So you're making a distinction here between the Christians being under the influence of a demon, but you don't respect the term possession because it's not in the original text. You're saying Christians can be influenced. There are people who can be inhabited by a demon, but they can't be believers. Is that what you're saying? People who have evil spirits in their spirit, man, would be by, by definition, non-believers. People who have evil spirits in their soul or their body, they could be believers or non-believers. Just kind of depends on what's happening in that specific instance. Listen, there's more where this came from. If you want to see how deep this rabbit hole goes, check out MikeMyashiro.com.